I offer this quote by Janet Mock, who is a writer, director, as well as a transgendered activist, and wrote the book, Redefining Realness for Transgendered Girls of Color. I believe that telling our stories, first to ourselves, and then to one another, and the world is a revolutionary act. This podcast series is entitled Chatty Jacks, our stories about ordinary people doing extraordinary community work. It has been said that stories are critical to establishing a connection between people and or groups, and the sharing of stories can inspire, unite, or move us to create change. The intent of this series is to create a sense of connection to community groups or organizations created or inspired by ordinary people doing extraordinary community work, possibly within your very own community. Hello, and welcome to our second episode, part one, Sistery, all about the joy the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. I'm Chatty Jacks, your ever-so-curious, genderqueer host for this podcast. I appreciate you spending your time with my guest and I, listening to their stories that have given rise to creativity, activism, and life-changing community work, which truly enables us to see through the eyes of others. During my podcast series... I'll be having conversation with ordinary folks as we gather stories and share an individual or group's experiences so that we can weave together an understanding of values, a collective common ground, or the love we all have for community connection. My guests speak to how vital connection is and how this facilitates action, volunteerism, community wellness, and identity by engaging you In their stories, we become open to new perspectives, and this allows us an opportunity to be reflective and inspired. On this, my second episode, I am so very honored to welcome our three guests, all of whom are a sister of perpetual indulgence. We hope the story of the sisters of perpetual indulgence piques your curiosity or sparks an interest in you to become a sister, or motivates you to search for a deeper understanding of the issues the sisters present, possibly inspires or encourages you to move towards your own dream to build something for the betterment of your community. I'm going to take this moment to acknowledge my white privilege and the insistence of inequities and disadvantages that Indigenous, Black, Asian, and all other visible and cultural minorities experience in this Canadian state. These inequities have afforded me a lifetime of privilege and enjoyment from unearned benefits and rights brought to me from the oppression of others. On my podcast, I also do a land acknowledgement to give back a sense of identity by honoring the generation of caretakers of the land we are on which is an important part of Canada's reconciliation process. I am painfully aware of the structured violence, the ongoing oppression from colonialism, and the trauma that is intergenerational for the Indigenous people in this Canadian state. 
This podcast was recorded in Calgary, Toronto, and San Francisco. In Calgary, we live on the traditional territories of Treaty 7. It is with reverence, therefore, that I do a land acknowledgement for the First Nations Treaty 7 people of Turtle Island in the spirit of respect, reciprocity, and truth. We honor and acknowledge that we live on the stolen lands of Turtle Island on the traditional territories of the Treaty 7 nations whose footprints have imprinted this land for century. The Blackfoot nations, including Sisika, Pikani, the Kayanai, the Su'ina nations, and the Stony Nakoda First Nations, we acknowledge that this territory is home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. A heartfelt thank you to Awesome People by Lisa. I am so grateful that you are both so involved and excited to edit this podcast series. The music for this podcast was produced by Jared Nicklin, who is a music producer, music programmer, and chill electronic instrumentalist. Hello, on my podcast series, I like my guests to introduce themselves so we do not miss any of the juicy parts. It's truly a joy to welcome Sister Mary Peter, Sister Mary Q. Contrary, and Sister Visa Decline. Would you please share with our audience who you are and how you move through the world? And let's start with Mary Peter. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Jax. Welcome, everybody. It's nice to see you virtually. Uh, I'm Sister Mary Peter, and I'm calling in from the San Francisco coast, which is the traditional and unceded territories of the Ramatouche, Ohlone, and Mawikma nations. I'm very glad to honor them today. Uh, I have been a Sister of Perpetual Indulgence since 1987, when I started uh, after meeting Sister Missionary P. Delight during a radical ferry uh, gathering in Short Mountain, Tennessee. And then she slapped a veil on me around a bonfire, sent me back to Toronto without an instructions manual and said, go have fun. Uh, and so I have been ever since. Um, uh, back in Toronto, I did a lot of work with queer and indigenous youth on the streets uh, and housing insecure kids who were doing survival sex work, called the first uh, queer bingo in Toronto and did a lot of HIV and AIDS ministry. And then in 1999, I moved down to the Bay Area where I met my husband of 21 years, Joe Terranova. And uh, we live just south of the city now, but I've done all sorts of things. I've been a mistress of propaganda, mistress of missions. I've been a board member. I've been a radical nun with a bullhorn and boots for longer than I can think. Uh, and I consider myself a friend and mentor to a lot of houses and sisters. Vancouver, I proudly claim as my kids, along with a Couvent de Montréal and the house in Boston. Uh, so lots of wonderful connections and very pleased to share them and be with all of you today. Oh, that's beautiful. Mary Q, would you like to add your part there? I, I would love to, Jack. Thank you and uh, welcome everyone. Uh, I'm calling in from the land that is traditionally known as Takaronto, which means where the water, the trees stand in the water. Um, and it's the traditional, traditionally it's a meeting place of many nations, including the Haudenosaunee, the Mississaugas of the Credit, um and and many others and it continues to be cared for by many nations um 
I, uh, I joined the sisters uh, 11 years ago, formally. Um, the, my calling came about 12 years ago, actually at a, at a radical fairy gathering uh, with Mary Peter. Um, I've known Mary Peter for, for a long time. And uh, when, I, when my calling to sisterhood finally came, she, uh, I remember very fondly, she's like, you better not be fucking me because I've been waiting a long time for this. So this better be real. Um, and um, I, I am one of the founders of the Van Grabby. Um, I'm also a radical fairy. I, uh, interestingly enough, my journey to queer spirituality came through Christian Theological College, um, where I was, I was at a theological college for a couple of years. And during that time, uh, went to a couple of gay, lesbian uh, spiritual retreats and, and I don't know if I met the fairies or if they met me, but one way or the other uh, landed in that community, uh, spent many years, still continue to be associated and, and uh, nurtured by them. Um, and I, I've just moved to Toronto. Um, I moved in the middle of the pandemic actually twice. Um, and my calling, um, I'm very lucky. I consider myself very privileged because I'm able to work in the social profit sector. Uh, and so I serve my community both through my paid work and through my volunteer work with the sisters and with others. Can you quickly just uh, let our audience know what is the Radical Fairies? Who are they? Oh, that is such a good question. You know, the best definition I've ever heard of the Radical Fairies is a statement about the usefulness or lack thereof of trying to define them where someone said trying to define the radical fairies is a bit like bottling fog and about as useful. But to give a bit more information than that, uh, the radical fairies, as I know them, uh, were started in 1979 by Harry Hay and John Burnside, his partner, and two others. Uh, and it's originally started as a group of queer men, gay men, um, exploring their spiritual side and embracing their sexual and physical side. Uh, it's very informed by uh, First Nations and pagan traditions of spirituality. Um, the way I often talk about it is it is mostly gay men who mostly agree that there is some connection between sexuality and spirituality. Um, and um, but every radical fairy defines the fairies for themselves. What I would say in my experience of them is they are one of, if not the most creative group of people. They are bigger than life um, and they are filled with joy and love to hold paradox. Um, mm -hmm. So things that should be opposites, somehow the fairies can manifest in the same place and time with beauty and joy. Wow. You know, the world is, uh, it's a beautiful place when you hear stories like that. It seems very small sometimes and seems very lonely, but when you hear stories, as we're going to hear today, it's a much bigger community of love and joy. And then I'd like to uh, introduce my bestie here in Calgary, Sister Visa Decline. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us. Um, I'm Sister Visa Decline. I'm uh, the baby sister of the, of the three of us here. Um, I am a emeritus member of the Vancouver Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, the Abbey of the Long Cedar Canoe. And um, my calling to become a sister, you know, uh, I guess isn't as spiritual necessarily as as Mary Peter and Mary Q. Um, I first I've, I've known about the sisters uh, first seeing them actually in a Margaret Cho 
comedy DVD. They were sitting in the front row, and I was kind of uh, interested by by their their aesthetic, their aesthetic, and um, had the opportunity to meet sisters down in Seattle, uh, having been in Vancouver, traveling between the two cities quite often. Um, and I first met Sister Anyanese in Seattle, and uh, was elated when in 2007 they decided to come to a pride house party slash barbecue that I was having in my backyard. I literally had Sister cast a spell anew and Sister Anyanese in my backyard. Um, and then uh, in 2010, Mary Q and some others started the the uh, Abbey of the Long Cedar Canoe and I decided to get involved in 2012 as an, as an uh, aspirant member. Um, I've lived in Calgary here for the past six years uh, on the traditional land of the Treaty 7 First Nations, uh, which Jack's introduced you to earlier. Um, and yeah, I've been, a, I've been for most of my sister career a missionary member uh, living away from my house, um, but I've chosen to be involved uh, in the United Nuns Privy Council, which I'm sure we'll learn more about later on. Um, as the secretary and as the chair nun, and uh, I'm working hard to get a uh, sister house started here in Calgary. Yes, we are. Yes, we definitely are. All right, I uh, appreciate those brief introductions. We'll learn more about these fabulous humans throughout this podcast. Mary Peter, can you provide our listeners, please, with a summary of the sistery? instead of history, sistery, of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Who I can. So um, in 1979, two uh, dyed-in-the-wool queer activists moved from Iowa to San Francisco. And on Easter weekend, they got bored and they went into their drag cupboard and the only things they had left were some old sister habits that they had stolen from a convent back in Iowa to do a queer uh, performance of The Sound of Music. So they put those on and then they walked up from the mission neighborhood where they lived into the Castro, which is the traditional uh, LGBTQ community in San Francisco. And they didn't have a plan. They were bored. They thought it would be a fun day out. But when they got onto the street, the response they had was electric. People poured out of the bars, cheering them on immediately identifying them as sisters, asking them to hear their confessions, to bless them, to champion their causes. Uh, and because they were both practiced activists, they figured out very quickly, hmm, this is a tool for community building. So yeah, within a couple connection. of weeks, yeah. So within a few weeks of that, um, at that time, there were a, a massive boat lift from Cuba of refugees and there were a lot of uh, LGBTQ refugees in that um, experience. And so they did a softball game challenging um, other softball teams as a group of queer nuns uh, to raise money for Cuban refugees. Uh, they won, shocked everybody, but there you are. And then very quickly after that, they started to do public manifestations or demonstrations in uh, the Habits of Sisters everything from protesting a nuclear war to campaigning against sex negative sort of police harassment in the city. And one of the most powerful things they did was at that time, Anita Bryant and the emerging religious right 
uh, an oxymoron, both of those terms going together at any time, um, were, were picketing the Castro because they were trying to pass legislation making it illegal for anyone who was gay or, or gay positive to teach in public schools. And it was causing a lot of pain. And so the sisters actually, by that time, were growing in membership. They went down to the corner of 17th and Castro, which is the center of the community, and they formed a can-can line in front of uh, Anita Bryant's rabid sort of protesters. And can-can kicked and sang them all the way out of the Castro down Market Street. So That is so fantastic. Yeah, so from the very beginning, I think that what made Sisters come alive was these were practiced people who had been community building in queer settings for a while. And uh, the community responded to this image of non-traditional people dressed as sisters in a way that was powerfully magnetic. And so what I always tell people is Sisters Perpetual Indulgence would not exist unless there was a community that called them. And so that's a really important piece for me. Since then, uh, the community has grown worldwide. Um, very shortly after, a community appeared in Toronto, and then in Australia, and then in England. And now we're all over the US. There are several communities in Canada, in France, in Ireland, in Poland, in the Ukraine, in the Czech Republic. Uh, there are sisters trying to form communities all across Latin and Central America. We have I think a dive. it's important just to jump in for one quick sec, sorry to interrupt you, but I think it's beautiful because some of those uh, communities that you just spoke of, uh, being gay or, or visibly LGBTQ is a death sentence. Well, one of the Poland, most powerful... Like, the most holy smokes. Yeah, one of the most powerful things about what's been happening is since the internet, mm -hmm. sisters have emerged in the least likely communities for those of us who come from traditional or safe um, gay or lesbian or bi or trans spaces. And so the power of seeing that image, just like in the original walk up Castro Street, has connected with people in different cultural contexts, different languages, different political experiences, and it's meant something to them. So in the Ukraine, for example, some of the sisters manifest as Ukrainian Orthodox sisters carrying a traditional garb our breadbasket sisters in Regina take on images from the Ukrainian community that are familiar to them. In Uruguay, our sisters actually work like a little paramilitary group of radicals because um, they face literal death squads when they go out. So wow. they wear sunglasses and makeup and habits, and they do what we would call guerrilla queer bombing, where they go out manifest in an event, make their presence known, and then disappear into the community uh, because of political oppression. So I, I think what's interesting is while we've expanded in places that are what I would call LGBT progressive, we're expanding most rapidly in places where there's the most resistance. So in the American South, in the Canadian West, in the Eastern part of Europe, and in Latin and South America. And I think that's important when we when we bring sisters into the life we remind them that it's really your sense of a calling but what makes it real is the call from the community that says we need you and then also a little bit of resistance helps grow a good sister because that gives us focus and formation and it gives us a purpose i just so, think of the bravery of that i just think of of the courage 
that so much that we take for for granted and we are all uh, white people having this conversation. We are all privileged. So when I think when I'm listening to this, I, I, I literally get goosebumps because it's the work we all want to do. We want to make a difference, but not just make a difference in raising $20 at an event. We want to make a statement, be visible and help someone that really needs to see visibility so that they can be seen through us. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and Jax, there's two really good things you touched on there. The first is, yes, this is a privileged group of white identified folks, but the sisterhood now is emerging and expanding way beyond those boundaries. And for me as a sister of almost 40 years, I define my sisterhood not by what came before. I honor the traditions that I've inherited, but I'm really finding my sisterhood shaped by what's coming next. Mm -hmm. And most of what's coming next is emerging in the young trans community, in the two-spirited community. One of the most powerful sisters we have is from the Navajo reservation, the Navajo nation in Arizona, Sister Navi Ho. She's doing powerful work. Uh, sisters like Sister Fancy Pants in Vancouver and Sister Frida Peoples are leading conversations within and outside of the order about the impact of racism, colonialism, and, and the powerful impact, which resonates in the Canadian context, of the oppression that mm -hmm. Catholic systems, and particularly Catholic religious women, were a part of in the genocidal exploitation and abuse of Indigenous cultures in Canada, but also here in the US and elsewhere. So I think when I think about, well, where are the sisters from and who are we, it's who are we about to be based on these new voices and new stories. And the other thing I think for me is I do honor the bravery of my sisters. I'll, I'll say I've been brave, uh, you know, as a young nun um, in my Doc Martens and my bingo outfit, getting <laughs> confronted by um, sound like a lesbian. Yeah. Well, <laughs> punk ass white kids from the suburbs in Toronto. I had to chase them down the street with a lead pipe. There's a little bravery in that, but also there's a lot of foolishness in being a nun. And so I wanna just, I don't wanna create this hagiography of the idealized sister because most people who become nuns, they're just average kids who wanna do something creative. They're usually kind of misfits who don't quite fit in anywhere. And some people are just attracted by the fact that they get to put on makeup and fancy clothes. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. If that's the path in, that's the path in. And um, as a sister, I wear a big mirror on a chain because my mother, Mish, wore a mirror. But the only reason she started wearing one is that when she drove an old bus from San Francisco to Tennessee to found the ferry community, when she parked, the passenger side mirror fell off. And she has OCD and doesn't like to throw anything away. So she used a little <laughs> welding gun, put it on a chain and started wearing it as a mirror. So there's a lot of kind of spontaneity and synchronicity in terms of becoming a nun. But I wear it because often people will see a nun and just like you did, Jack, say, oh, you're so beautiful. You're so heroic. You're so brave. I'm 196 centimeters. So I'm also very tall. You put a, a hat on top of that and a wimple and I'm huge. Um, I use the mirror to say, well, I'm nothing but a reflection of who I'm looking at right now. And I'm just manifesting for you or, or exhibiting for you the beauty and the courage and the joy that maybe today you don't have the energy or the space to claim, but I know it's coming. So hang on, be with us. So for me, I think that's important. And then, you know, sisters, we are drag identified nuns because we're gender 
variant and gender fluid and gender varied. We employ a lot of the language and symbolism, not just of churches and monasteries, but also of the drag community. But the way I like to differentiate is for a successful drag queen or drag king, you shine a spotlight on them for their performance, their larger than life energy. And then they use that and channel that back into the community and they create families and tribes. And that's a wonderful thing. And it's been at the forefront of queer community for ages. Mm -hmm. Sisters put on drag because we want to break out of the normal energy and give ourselves a chance to come in in a heartbeat, catch people by surprise, and then immediately throw the focus onto the community and onto the people we're working with. So in a way, it's like being a magician where the wimple and the habit, that's like the sleight of hand. But what's happening is the magic is in that relationship with the other person. So I think this sense of sisterhood we're over 40 years old. We're now this universal and growing community of people from different communities with different voices and experiences. Uh, when you become a nun today, chances are you're going to become a nun in a community that's less than a decade old. And you're going to do it in ways that people have not seen before because you are coming from a community that never had this before. Um, and I alluded to Sister Navajo earlier. Uh, some of our sisters coming from indigenous communities, from the Latinx communities, from the trans communities, they're even exploring the name sister. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, sister was a powerful word because growing up, I went to Catholic schools and it was the nuns that taught me who gave me a pathway to liberation. They were strong women, often coming from poor families in the mid-Atlantic or Atlantic regions. If they hadn't become nuns, they would have been the wives of fishermen or they would have been factory workers. So they found this vocation as a way to express independence, to study, to be activists, to be singers and composers and liturgists. So that's my touch point. But for some people coming from indigenous communities, that word is toxic. And so people have started to explore words like um, auntie which in many communities is those are the people who carry the wisdom and the energy and the experience that sisterhood carries for me. So I'd say in the next decade, we're going to start seeing more people who are called aunties of perpetual indulgence or shamans of perpetual indulgence or elder grandmas of perpetual indulgence. And I think that's wonderful. I mean, I think if you don't grow and embrace, well, then you start to wither and die and you lose your relevance. So that's a little bit of where I'm sort of seeing things today and the nexus point of all these things. Well, that was brilliant and, and so heartfelt. So I, uh, I appreciate you sharing that. When you look up the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, Mary Peter, um, it's kind of a broader statement of, of who we are. So I appreciate, uh, I appreciate the depth that you went into. Um, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, they are considered a leading edge order, 21st century queer nuns. I would like to discuss the use of the word queer because for some who are aging in the LGBTQIA2S plus communities, this is a generation of people where the use of queer is affiliated and attached to traumatic memories. The slurring of the word queer, the prejudice, the hate, the violence that followed. For some folks, the use of the word queer in the community is offensive, insultive, difficult to hear, and puts them at unease. 
So Mary Q, would you please tell us why queer nun was attached to the word uh, sisters of perpetual indulgence? Uh, thanks, Jack. I'll, what I'll say is I will start and invite my other sisters to join in because again, mm -hmm. as with many things in the sisters, we all probably have our own take and and uh, conceptualization of, of why we call ourselves queer. Um, for me, uh, when I was introduced to the word queer, it was actually when I was in theological college again, oddly enough, my <laughs> activism came from quite a, what could have been quite a, a conservative and traditional place. Um, and at that time, queer theory and queer theology, queer was being used as a shorthand for the broader LGBTQ2S plus community. And uh, I think partly because it's shorter to say. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the, the original hope, at least from what I understood, was that it would be inclusive of those on the periphery. And, and my understanding of queer, we are one of the few peoples who are born into families that are not like us. And that's been really central to my upbringing and to my growing. Um, I, I was born in a family that for the most part was not like me. I was born into a town in rural Saskatchewan that for the most part was not like me. Um, and I had to find my people, find people that were like me. And for me, that's part of queerness is that although we may look like those around us, we know we, we are not. And there's a process of coming out and there's a process of um, finding who is like us, who we relate to. Um, and so for me, that's where the term queer is important uh, and why we use that term. Um, and, and I do acknowledge, I mean, I, even now, recently at work, I was talking and the word queer came out and one of my colleagues was like, oh, can you say that word? <laughs> and, and I was like, well, I'm queer, so I think I can say that word. Um, but it opened a conversation about what it meant. And, and so that's why I love this question, because it's opening the conversation. It's not assuming. Um, and part of the power of the sisters is we have long reclaimed words. And I think it's part of the larger queer community has reclaimed words. I mean, there was a time when using uh, you know, she, her pronouns for a male identified faggot was insulting. Mm -hmm. Now, many of us claim that proudly. Um, you know, there, there was a time when faggot was the insult that was used. Now, many people identify as faggots, right? And so, and I, I you know, similarly, dyke used to be an insult. And now, and this is the part of my family that was like me. My mom came out a few years and she proudly identifies as a butch dyke, mm -hmm. right? So I, I think in, in the community, we have often gone to reclaim words, to take the edge off of them uh, and to further our identity and further who we are as people. Nice. Mary Peter, I heard you on a podcast talk about the word queer and it was absolutely lovely. Would you like to give your definition of the word queer? What that looks like, feels like for you? 
Well, sure. I'm, I'm happy to share from my experience that the first thing I want to say, though, is I really want to echo what Mary Q has said. Um, I'm aging in the queer community, not always gracefully, um, but uh, I recognize and honor the experience of people who came before me and who are in my generation or who are in cultural context now where that word is triggering. And like Mary Q said, I don't want to stop using it because I don't want to walk around on footsteps or, uh, you know, on, on my tippy toes, rather. Uh, mm -hmm. I want to be able to be present to people. And if where I am and what I am and what I represent is triggering, I want to be present to have a conversation. But I also know that for a lot of younger uh, folk, uh, that word is powerful. And so for me, the way I see it is queer is one of the most expansive ways I can talk about the people I serve and the people I feel connection to. It's not just gay men or lesbian women or bi or trans folk. It's everyone who has been defined by their context as a misfit and then made to feel shame about that or made to feel less than. Uh, early in the 19th and 20th centuries, a lot of people within our own communities were deeply marginalized, working class queer people in Britain, um, laboring folks on the East Coast of the United States. And the word queer meant different or strange or alluring or interesting or fascinating or magical. And so I think even in those times of the most profound oppression, there is still a message of liberation and hope in that word. And what I try to do is I don't try to define a word for others. I try to make visible for others in the way I walk in the world, the meaning of the word queer. And within our sisterhood, at first, it was mostly white-identified, cis-acting gay men. The first issue arose when a, a woman, a bio-identified woman, wanted to join the order. <gasps> Scandal, is that possible? Well, of course, one of the most amazing founding nuns we've had. And in subsequent generations, trans-identified people, people of color, people who don't speak English, people who've never been in North America, obviously. If this resonates with you where you are, bloom where you're planted. And right. for me, queer is the word that says the garden is full of many different flowers. They're all magical and colorful. If you eat some of them, it'll give you a really good trip. If you eat others, uh, you're going to have to go to hospital. And we can talk about how that defines my relationships with sisters over the almost 40 years I've been here. But um, nobody fights like a nun with another nun. But I think queer for me, it's that sense of forward moving, expanding liberation, but that also also not only honors the past, but says even then in the worst of times, these people who were called these insults, they had power and magic. And I want to draw on that because hmm, today ain't that much different from the past. You just talk to any of the folks in the Black Lives Matter movement or Every Child Matter movement this summer. Mm, things don't look that much different depending on where you are. So I think I think that continuity of queer as well as that expansiveness for me says something. And for my um, siblings who are triggered by that, that's fine. I honor that. I celebrate who you are. Let's talk about it because I, I think there's something there, even in your experience there, you're still here. Uh, MQ talked about queer people always being born in a family that they don't identify with. 
I think queer people also are on a magical journey. You know, because we're born in families that don't necessarily look like us, I talk about the, the journey of queerness as someone who is born old because all the shit hits you right out of the womb and you got to deal with it and you got to grow up fast. But over time, you get younger because when you go through all those struggles, you become resilient, braver, more confident, more bold. And ultimately, as a queer person aging, I think the goal is to become ageless or timeless. Queer people don't have to fit into any one moment or culture. We're transcending. That's the whole point of our legacy. Other people who didn't fit in gave it to us. We're going to give it to people who don't fit in later. We may be fitting in just fine where we are now, but 10 years from now, we might not. So I think that's a powerful, powerful thing and a weapon to use against powerful people who try to suppress and oppress our culture and our communication. I would agree. Mary P., I lost my best friend Ricky, who I considered a brother, to AIDS in 1992. And uh, the AIDS epidemic in the early 80s and 90s devastated our communities. We lost many brilliant young folks uh, taken in their early 20s, 30s, and 40s uh, with so much disregard uh, from the political systems, from, from our healthcare systems. The fear of, um, of the gay plague was palatable. And um, the sisters actually played a significant role in the early years of caring for uh, folks who had HIV and AIDS. Let's talk a little bit about the importance of that and some of the things that um, were uh, developed, the AIDS quilt, AIDS candlelight visual, AIDS cycle, life cycle. I think there's quite a few um, sisters that take part in that. And then the battle against the numerous AIDS denial theories and how the sisters helped erase some of that or, or talked about that at great length. So let's start there. Great, thanks, Jack. And, you know, it's so timely given the pandemic that we're all living through. And um, I, I do believe, and I, I've said it from near the beginning of the pandemic and many of my brother sisters have said it, that I think the queer community learned lessons through the AIDS pandemic and epidemic that could be useful for our society these days if they were willing to listen. Um, so, you know, and I, it was so long ago that many people may not know or may have forgotten that when AIDS, even before it was called AIDS, but when it first emerged, people were afraid to touch. People were, especially people that were sick. We didn't know what was causing it and it took much longer to determine than than in the case of the COVID pandemic. Um, and in all of the stories that I heard, and, and most of that happened before my time, right? So this is based on the the history and the history that I've heard. Um, but queer men and lesbians came together to care for the for those of us that were sick. And in San Francisco, one of the original sisters uh, was a nurse, uh, Sister Florence Nightingale. And the, as the story that I've been told goes, she used what she understood about disease transmission to come to the conclusion that more likely than not, uh, AIDS was transmitted sexually and not through the air, not through casual touch, but through exchange of body fluids. And 
I think that helped the sisters to ensure that they went and cared for people. They were some of the only people in San Francisco, not the only, there were some amazing community activists, but that would go and sit and hold the hand of someone dying from AIDS. Um, the sisters also wrote the first sex positive safer sex pamphlet. Um, at the time, that was the only, you know, using barriers was the only way to keep ourselves safe from the virus. And the sisters, true to their tradition of, of um, you know, banishing stigmatic, stig, stigmatic guilt, which is guilt of the body, um, they wrote a, a, a sex positive, safer sex pamphlet. So the general message was stop having sex. And especially you gay men who are promiscuous and having multiple partners, you need to just stop. And the sisters and said, said, no, this is part of who we are. It is part of our community. We need to learn how to do what we want and need to do as safely as possible. Uh, and so they wrote the, the Play Safe pamphlet. Um, you know, in many ways, way ahead of their time. It was harm reduction before it had a label. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and you know, and I think the interesting thing for me is as we've evolved and now there's there's PrEP, right, which is a preventative medication. Um, so what safer sex is now is different than what it was in 81. Um, and many of the sisters, and I, maybe not all, I think there may be some who still believe must use condoms, mm -hmm. um, but many of the sisters have evolved and and the way that I understand it, the way I talk about it with people is I want you to have joy in your life. And I want your health to be maintained through that. So how do we and how do you navigate that? And let's have a conversation about that. I don't think there's any one right or wrong way. I think there are ways that are safer sometimes than others. Um, but what's important is we stay in conversation with ourselves and with those that were exploring joy and pleasure with. And we take and, the shame out. And yeah. we, yes, and take the shame out, yes. I was just going to add in there that that we're kind of, um, you know, revisiting, you know, what the sisters in 1981, 1983 went through now with PrEP, um, where we, you know, the, the stigma now isn't so much about HIV or AIDS. I mean, it still exists. It's still something that's important to talk about. but. Um, People who choose PrEP as a safer sex method um, are being shamed by members of our community for, you know, oh, if you're using PrEP, you're, you know, you're just being a bareback slut or whatever, whatever the case may be. And people need to um, understand that that PrEP sex is safer sex. Um, and so that's where I think, you know, we're revisiting a lot of a lot of what we went through in, in the 80s um, in a modern sort of way, I guess. Um, and it's an important discussion to have, and it's a discussion that sisters will continue to have, and uh, opinions will evolve, and and people's minds will change. But um, it it sort of speaks to the relevancy of of the work that we're doing and continue to do. Mary Peter, can you talk a little bit about the AIDS quilt, the vigils, the uh, AIDS cycle rides, and um, lots of conversation about people who. Um, uh, we're denial about AIDS, and then the uh, the hatred and the and the the horrible things that happened. I remember when when my best friend Ricky was dying. He was at the Foothills Hospital here in Calgary, 
Uh, we were allowed to go see him because they thought he had about 24 hours left to left to live. And we hadn't seen him in a couple of weeks. So we were appalled at, at how much weight he had lost and how sick he really was. But we were more appalled at the lack of care. He had been laying in his own urine. It actually was running out the door. Um, and it, the just the lack of, of dignity allowed to him in his in his last days was what what sits with me. And when I think of, of doing any AIDS fundraisers, I think of those moments of, of how do we give people back their dignity? What does that look like? How do we remember people and move forward in a way that that um, erases shame, but still allows people to live their life, like you said, Mary uh, Q, with joy, right, safely? So, Mary Peter, do you have anything you'd like to add about uh, the different ways that uh, the sisters supported that and raised funds and awareness? I do. Um you know, historically, it was Sisters Florence Nightmare and Sister Ra's Erection, who were both certified nurses, who um, really helped us develop the Playfair materials and then move out into the community uh, in terms of education. So I want to honor that. But I also want to talk about the fact that sisterhood does not pay, right? Unlike the Pope, we have to buy our own jewelry. Nobody buys it for us. There's no slush fund. You've got a. God, I wish. Visa. <laughs> there's a reason her name is Decline. Decline. That's it's right. But the point I'm making is that all of us come to our sisterhood with other professional and personal and creative skills. So, and in times of crisis, we lean into those. So, in the AIDS crisis, the first nuns to respond, of course, were nurses. They were in the ward seeing people come in without any help. But as time has evolved, the sisters have basically raised money for the AIDS um, emergency. The first thing we did was we were doing dog shows in the Castro to raise money for Playfair and for the first AIDS communities. And then through our connections, people like Shirley MacLaine started to come out and support us. And so we were getting celebrity and um, nothing attracts media like a big bearded guy in a nun habit uh, taking on Diane Feinstein and throwing blood. That kind of gets to headlines. So we learned how to do PR very early on, guerrilla PR. And then uh, folks like Cleve Jones, who were instrumental in the AIDS fight, they're the ones that actually started the quilt, but the sisters supported it. And we now have a panel devoted to all the sisters who passed of AIDS uh, called the Nuns of the Above that's put out. The quilt just celebrated its 40th anniversary in a big memorial in the National AIDS Grove in San Francisco, very powerful. So what I was thinking is, you know, the sisters had a part to play, but it was others like Cleve Jones, Joni Juster, others in the community that really created the quilt. But I think what's important to glean from that is what sisters learned and then communicated in that crisis and all the ones that have followed. The first is that um, in a health crisis, powerful people exploit division among less powerful people. And they do it by lying and by denying the science and the facts. And that causes death and damage. So that was true in AIDS. It's true in breast cancer. It's true in COVID. And those impacts are always felt by the people at the edges. So the first thing I think the sisters figured out is that you have to speak truth aggressively, constantly, and powerfully. You have to find your voice, you have to organize the voices of others, and you have to lobby and push for the truth to be at the heart of any policy, at decisions about funding and access to resources. The other thing is 
marginalized communities don't often have resources. So the other thing we learned is you've got to create them for yourself. So along with other queer people, the first healthcare agencies, the first fundraisers, the first lobbying groups, the first scientific periodicals to publish from the community all came out of our communities. And just like today in COVID, organizations of people in South Africa lobbied for access to the virus um, uh, vaccines, people in England lobbying to get folks vaccinated, people in San Francisco, some of the first people putting out mask campaigns were Sister Roma and the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, making masks look sexy. Uh, Sister Bear Anse in LA actually made masks. She had a personal challenge to make thousands of masks for people. So when you're in a crisis, you create your own resources, you lean into your own community. The other thing is you also learn you have to take care of yourself and you have to take care of others. Sister Mayjoy is famous for saying self-care is sexy. Mm. And from the beginning of the AIDS crisis, a lot of people were trying to get access to good health care, to meds, to political and, and uh, policy changes. It was the sisters that were first realizing people were lonely. People were afraid. People need to be touched. People need to be held. And then the people doing it needed that too. I mean, look at the extreme stress that the nursing profession is under now with COVID. Who's loving, not, who's loving nurses? Who's supporting nurses? Who's giving them access to mental health care? Well, in many places, the sisters are helping with that. So in Boston, we've been raising money for nursing care. In Montreal, we've been helping the housing insecure find access to treatment. In San Francisco, we're promoting easy access to vaccines. And several sisters like myself, when it was difficult to find an appointment, spent hours online getting vulnerable people to appointments, getting them booked, getting them there, getting their vaccines. So that kind of do-it-yourself attitude where you're, you're overcoming the shame and the lies, you're attacking the powerful with truth, and you're organizing from within and creating those models. You know, in the COVID crisis, one of the reasons mRNA vaccines came online so fast is because of the work HIV and AIDS activists did reforming the way drugs are tested and approved. So there's a, a lot of that. And I think for those of us who went through the worst of those years or are going through it now, this has been a really triggering time. I've, I've lost over 40 people in this pandemic. It's touched every community, my own family. Uh, it brings up all those memories. But acknowledging that and then claiming the power that comes from the fact you've survived one, you can certainly survive another, lets us claim a leadership that I don't think is arrogant. I think it's humble. I think it's servant leadership. It lets us get in there and help people. And all through the last couple of decades, I think of the Pulse Massacre. It was sisters in at least 15 cities in the U.S. that organized the first candlelight vigils for that, that started to get fundraising for the victims of the attack. I think about 9-11. The sisters are the first people to do a public vigil for the queer victims of those attacks and also to stand firmly with our Muslim friends, to stand firmly in favor of avoiding warfare as a triggering way of attacking people because of that um, crisis. So at every point, at every inflection point, I think sisters, because you know we pay our own bills, which means we're working in other areas, 
we, we have a network instantly and we know how to get things done. And at our best, I think, we become cutting edge experts. Again, I want to shout out to my sister Navi in the Navajo Nation. You know, the Navajo Nation was deeply impacted, not just by COVID, but by the arrogance of a federal government that refused to honor its commitments to get funding to tribal nations. So the, the Navajo people put it together themselves. And one of the first things that happened is Navi helped organize queer Denende pride uh, and a Navajo pride virtually and helped sponsor a drag contest online to raise money for the Navajo Healthcare Clinic, even though people in her own family were impacted and died of COVID. So those are the voices I wanna kind of highlight and celebrate. And I think I look to as a sister of almost 40 years for inspiration and where we're going next. Mm -hmm. Powerful stories. I know in, in uh in Alberta, our Indigenous, well, across Canada, but in Alberta, our Indigenous communities have, uh, not ours, but Indigenous communities have, have suffered greatly with the, I mean, how do you sanitize your hands when there's no clean water? Nothing, you know, no sanitizer. So that is quite uh, something to think about. I'm just going to ask, um, jump right ahead here a little bit to ask Mary Peter one more question here before they have to leave. When you took your vows, when you were slapped on, on that beautiful little outfit, what did that invoke for you? What does that mean for you? What what does all of this mean for you? And why take vows? Why why become a sister? Well, so the context for me is I was in the middle of a nervous breakdown. I was part of a large intentional community uh, working with disabled people. Uh, I was doing a theology degree at Regis College. I was involved in ACT UP and Queer Nation in, in uh, Toronto, and I, f I hit a wall. <laughs> just was pooped. So mm -hmm. I became a nun because a friend gave me car keys and said, you need a break. There's this place in Tennessee, just go there and chill. Uh, so like the first nuns that put those habits on and walked without a plan, I just basically collapsed. And I got lucky that the first person I met was this little bearded guy who two days into our conversation, it dawned on us that he was the first sister of perpetual indulgence, one of those two that walked up the street. And I was trying to become one, but didn't know how, because there had been a convent in Toronto, but it had disappeared. And I couldn't figure out, well, how do you do this? So for me, um, there was kind of a week long intense formation where Mish told me what this meant to him, what the original sisters were trying to do. And it resonated with me. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I had grown up Catholic in an Irish family. Uh, it was religious women who had taught me most of my valuable lessons in life. And at 16, actually, one of the older nuns, Sister Claire, who was our guidance counselor, made me take a multiple choice um, career preference test. And then when the results came back, she and the principal called me in and asked what I'd done to fuck with a test because my number one career preference was religious sister nun. And she's like, how did you do that? And I, to this day, I don't know why that came back. I, I hit the appropriate binary choices for male and uh, there's nothing particularly religious about me but so I think there's a bit of fate going but mm. um, for me when I took my vows I did it because I was steeped in a history in a community where it was religious women who really carried healing justice work poverty work um, activism those were the people I knew that, that did the work Often it was the priests 
who took the glory. But it was always these hardworking women that got it done. And I wanted to be one of the people that got it done. I also didn't want to do it alone. And so the other thing is this concept of sisterhood, sororal bond. I have people to lean on, to carry me when I can't do it. And then for me, the concept of a vow is a promise. It's made to these people that walk with me, but it's also made to the community and to the world, to the planet, that I will transform my life through service to bring certain things into being. And for me, nothing was more important in those years than getting rid of the shame and guilt that were oppressing and killing our people mm. and bringing forth a spirit of joy. So for me, the vows I take, and Aviza and Mary Q have taught, heard me talk about this before, for me, that's the crucible in which I pour my life. To say I'm a servant of joy means that my whole life, however long or short, however happy or tragic, is being heated in this crucible of this promise that I made and tempered until everything burns away. But this rock hard, golden, solid truth that my life has purpose and it's given to other people in service. And I didn't vow to be a sister promulgating universal happiness. Because happiness is a transitory emotional high. I had a good lay. I took a hit on a great bong. I got a good job. I got my paycheck on time. Joy is something that's hard won. It comes through after the tears and the anger and the loss and the disappointment. And you're still standing and saying, I can deal with all this. And there's still something for me to do. And there's hope for tomorrow. So the thing for me is we talk about sisters being in face and out of face, being in our manifested self or mundane self. It just means when I put on the face paint in the habit or when I'm walking around in my ordinary sweatpants, which have done too much during quarantine. <laughs> but no matter in or out of face, in or out of that habit, I'm always a nun. I'm always a sister because every interaction I have is an opportunity to bring forward joy. And every trial I experience, especially in the last year and a half of this pandemic, is a reaffirmation that I am not alone, that I stand in a legacy of powerful people, and that there are generations of people coming from me, and that somehow joy is going to endure. Even if tomorrow feels like the worst days of the Middle Ages, uh, good things will come uh, if we stand and keep our promises to one another. Uh, and so that's really it for me. Mary Peter, real quick, I know you have to leave, but I'm, I would like you just to, to go back to the conversation you had with the queer tribe, host Kurt and Donnie, where you stated, I did not become a nun as much as my community made one. Can you quick, made you one. Can you quickly explain that statement? Well, yeah, as I said, I had, I had been a researcher at the Lesbian Gay Archives in Toronto and I discovered, a, a, I was cataloging and I discovered pictures of gay men dressed as nuns going with gift baskets and singing and caring for people in our AIDS hospice at the Wellesley Hospital. But nobody could tell me who they were. It was just a year or two after they disbanded. Uh, and But it's something about who they were. Men dressed as nuns doing piecework in an AIDS hospice. That's what I wanted to do with my life. And then by chance, because I fell apart and ended up in Tennessee, I met this queer radical fairy, Mish, she put a veil on my head. I took the name Mary Peter, Mary with an E, because fairies say Mary met, Mary part, Mary meet again. 
and Peter, because that was my confirmation name, and I took it to stick it to the asshole bishop, because I thought if if Peter could get crucified upside down and do one better than Jesus, I'll show you, you motherfucker. <laughs> um, so I took that name. But when I got back to, to Toronto, Mish had not told me how to build a convent. Mish just gave me a big goal, but no book. So it was friends in the theater community to help me put an outfit together, to teach me how to do makeup. And it was walking out onto the street. I happened to live in the intersection where a lot of young people did survival sex work. They were the ones I met first. And so when I sat down on the steps of a coffee house um, and I thought, well, I guess I, I can sit here and see what happens. They started coming up asking me to hear their confessions. Huh. And at, at first it was just kind of a joke, like these sassy kids who, you know, they can sniff you a mile away if you've got an agenda they started to basically test me, right? Who's this crazy person dressed as a nun? But after about a half an hour, we had 50 people around us and it became a community healing where, where people were, were legitimately telling me about their pain. And from that started my first ministry, which is working with the Toronto Ministry of Health to uh, get needle exchange and condoms out to queer kids on the street that were doing sex work. And then because I was doing that, the owners of Bar 501 on Church Street saw me and asked if they wanted to do fundraisers for AIDS. Could I call bingo? Because that seemed like a Catholic thing to do. <laughs> so the next thing I know, I'm calling bingo in the window of a bar. And I didn't plan on any of that. That just happened. And I met Mary Q because some friends, some queer men in Pennsylvania, wanted to use this retreat center they'd built to welcome queer kids on a kind of an outward bound queer positive experience. Well, I worked with a few people to make that happen over a Halloween weekend as sister. And it was the love of those young people that made me realize, I think something's happening here. I should, I should pursue this. Um, so that's what I mean. Like I had an idea. I found tools in this legacy, but it's really the community that called me into truth. You know, it's being a nun is like being the velveteen rabbit. It's the love that makes you real. And I think it's the love and the support and the need of the community that really makes you a real nun. If you're in it for the show and the spotlight, at best, you've got three years. But if you're in it because you have this authentic desire to be in relationship with your community, you know, I'm not flawless. Sisters in San Francisco can read my resume and mistakes to you. It's all embossed in the archives, but I'm still here. And on balance, I've done more good than bad. And that's not bad for a, a middle-aged queer guy trying to do good. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. We'll hear from you soon again. Peace. I was inspired to become a sister when I was introduced and I was able to spend an evening with the fabulous Abby of the Long Cedar Canoe, the Vancouver Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Most sisters refer to being called to be a sister or being called to do ministry. Can you share with us why that is an important moment for you to take the steps to become a sister? Visa? Uh, sure. So um, I, I think that the, the, the calling is, is something different for everybody. Um, you know, for me, I was initially... Um, you know, my best friend at the time, my best friend decided to to become a sister. And, you know, I had been aware of the sisters for a long time. And 
Um, it was something that I was definitely interested in getting involved with. Um, you know, I've always sort of had a desire to give back to the community in some way. Um, you know, I've always been interested in in drag and and um, and in the work that the sisters do. Um, but I think for a lot of people, like as an example, I, I I don't feel like I would fit in with the drag community necessarily. Right? There's there's a lot of um, a lot of uh, expectations to be to be fishy as they like to call it and i'm uh you know a stocky bearded guy that just doesn't want to shave my beard so um <laughs> i you know my calling was you know i was definitely influenced by by friends of mine to join um i definitely had that desire to give back and and um you know i made sure that i was I had, was able to commit uh, the time that was necessary um, because, you know, at the end of the day, this does this is a commitment. You know, this is a, I don't know, eight to ten hours a month commitment uh, for people and, you know, going out into the community and finding that time to put makeup on and all that, that that takes time. Right. So I wanted to really make sure that I had the, the commitment, the, the ability to commit. Um, before the calling, but um, it was definitely something learning about the sisters, learning about the work that they that they do, um, you know, really inspired me to get involved. Uh, but for every sister, their calling is for different reasons. Um, I'm, I'm sure that that Mary Q's reasons are quite different from mine, but you started the Vancouver House. What was your calling to become a sister? When did you have that moment? What did it feel like? How'd you know? Yeah, so I before I go into it, I, I, I just want to acknowledge we do use the word calling and and I think many people when they hear that word think it's one event, it's powerful, oh. it's knock you over. And the reality of callings is they come in as many different ways as there are sisters. And so it can be subtle and built over time. It can be, you know, in, in theological language, it could be the road to Damascus where the skies open and the light shines down and you see the world differently. All of those kinds are valid callings. So my particular calling came uh, at a radical fairy gathering and um, I was getting ready to walk in the fashion show. Um, and a friend of mine had lent me these platform heels, knee high, red hot uh, plat, uh, the shiny leather. I can never remember the name and <laughs> patent leather. Yes. And um, and I put on this smart little bob and I was wearing this tight little dress and I started walking and what I felt inside of me was not just me. It it was a nun. And she had come to visit me for the first time. And I wasn't sure what to do with that. I had known about the sisters, you know, Mary Peter had talked about her incubation was about a week sitting with Mish. Well, mine was 15 years knowing Sister Mary Peter and hearing about the sisters, mm. honoring the work that they had, they did and do, and always thinking, oh, they're lovely and not for me. Mm. Um, and people who know me know that uh, sometimes I come to things slowly, but I do eventually get there. Um, so anyways, as I walked from the cabin where I had makeup and, and these fabulous heels on, enter into the lodge at, at the gathering and Mary Peter's there putting on the last of her makeup. And I went up to her and I said, Mary Peter, 
I need to talk to you about how I can go about starting the sisters in Vancouver. Wow. And and literally she was putting on eyelash and with the brush still in her hand, paused kind of halfway across her eyelid, her hand and her head turned to me and said, you damn well better not be fucking with me. I've waited 15 years for this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and you are late like, coming. Yeah. Nobody likes a fast yeah. cover. <laughs> <laughs> you can spread that rumor. <laughs> um, and, and for me, and I want to echo some of what Mary Peters said about joy. My understanding of joy is very similar and has been. Joy is not the easy one happiness of that's fleeting. Um, but it's the deep lasting joy that comes from having done the hard work to heal and and part of my understanding so the 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 vows that that we take um are to spread joy to um banish expiated guilt or to expiate stigmatic guilt or banish guilt mm -hmm. um especially guilt of the body and to be of service to our community and for me the spread joy piece isn't just about roller skating or skipping up and down the streets looking beautiful and reflecting the beauty of our communities but it's also spreading that knowledge that deep one knowledge that healing is possible yeah um and most of my life i have been in my own healing journey and have also had the privilege to hold space for other people's healing journeys and so that started long, like long before I was in the sisters, but I saw the sisters as another way to promote that and to be there to listen to people. So, you know, some sisters, Mary Peter being one of them, um, are, are very public figures and they hold huge spaces and do it very, very amazingly and well. And I can do that when I need to. Um, and others of us, and I put myself in this group, uh, are ministry and we thrive on the one-to-one -one conversations and and mary peter also does that very well but that's where i thrive and that's my calling as a sister and, and my ministry as a sister is even if it's only for five minutes to hold a space where people can let start to let go of if not let go of some of their hurt this world hurts us especially as queer people it it, it is not always kind to us and if I can be there for people who have been hurt by the world and, and are regularly hurt by the world, that is, I believe that's part of my purpose and my meaning on, on this plane as long as I am here. Um, so you know, it's not only asking, your career, it's who you are as a human being. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's taken me a while to figure that out. And, and I'm, I have not, I don't hold on to that perfectly, but I was asked a few weeks ago by uh, uh, an uh, Ojibwe elder um, what my personal vision was. And it struck me, I'm like, I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. And, and what I found came out of my mouth was that my personal journey, or my personal vision is to create and hold space for healing and when necessary, to defend those spaces. 
Um, and and so that I see is tied to the to the vows that we take as sisters and to my calling to be a sister. Mm -hmm. Well, I am not a sister yet. I do use the word the, the I call myself a sister because we are just an aspiring. You're a sister, an aspiring <laughs> house. But um, I have I have always in my community and I've been out for about 27 years now. I do have three beautiful children. But I've always been involved in my children's community, in my in my neighborhood communities, in my uh, gay community, my queer space communities. But I've always shown up and and just done what was necessary. That was my quiet act of love for my community. There was no makeup and drag. I I tried drag. I'm not I'm not good at it, but it was fun for a minute, but also very anxiety provoking. So my quiet act of love was just to show up and do what was necessary. What I noticed about the sisters and what was kind of uh, a dichotomy for me was how infectious it is when you see how radiant they are with the wimples, the white face, the jewels, the bling, and it's not quiet. It's a not it's not quiet in the community. So it was a bit of took my breath away. Like, that's not how I work. I work very quietly. I go in, I do my stuff. I don't want to be visible. Everybody knows who I am anyway. I just go in and I go out with the sisters. The visibility is very important, but there's a story behind the white face. That was to be to not be visible has your muggle face. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the, the white face came to the sisters uh, through one of the founding sisters, uh, uh, Sister Vish, or her full name is uh, Sister Vicious Power Hungry Bitch. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, what what I've heard is she's sister Vish when there's kids around, so to make it mm. family friendly, um, and and uh, she was a, a sex worker at the time, and it was in the late seventies, and it, among gay male culture at the time, being feminine was uh, was shunned. It was not accepted. Um, and so she was a little bit concerned that she may lose clients if people knew who she was. Mm. Um, and she had experimented with white face uh, when she was at home in Iowa <laughs> um, and thought, oh, this might be a venue to use it in. Uh, and so started using white face. And as you said, originally it was to conceal identity. And I think the interesting thing, and again, this is the, you know, as Mary Peter talked, it was three three gay men who didn't have a plan, but who put on nuns outfits and went into the Castro and discovered the power of it. I don't think Vish had a plan for Whiteface to become as powerful as, as it has become. But in my experience of putting on Whiteface, there's there's two aspects to it for me. First, I need, I sit for about an somewhere between one and two hours putting on my white face. And during that time, I'm in front of a mirror and it's a time of reflection for me. I have to sit and look at myself in the mirror and mm. really make sure that I'm okay with who's in that mirror um, mm. as I transform myself into Sister Mary Q. Um, mm -hmm. And then I go out into the community and for the most part, who and what people see is sister. They don't know who is behind it. Um, they often confuse us with one another. 
And to me, that's part of the power and the magic of it is that we're not interacting as ourselves. We are representing to the community what is possible. And by not having our individual identities, the baggage that we all carry as individuals doesn't come into that work. Right. Um, you know, I, I know I have done and said things as sister that, you know, my muggle self probably, well, I, even as I'm doing them, sometimes my muggle self is like, girl, what are you saying? <laughs> but it's what is needed in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and the, and I, as my muggle self, might not have the courage to do it. Mm -hmm. But because I am not there, and I, except there as my non-self, mm -hmm. then my non-self has the courage to do it. And again, mm -hmm. I'm I'm rep representing to the community what's possible, and so hopefully, what comes out of my mouth is from that spirit rather than from myself. Um, so that's some of the power that I see in, in whiteface. And Visa, you don't have to manifest. You don't have to be in whiteface to be a sister. There's other options, and that's Absolutely. not necessarily. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So I mean, most most people do think that the sisters have to have the white face on, and um, that's that's a misconception. I mean, obviously, that is a very uh, visible sort of trademark of the sisters of perpetual indulgence. But I mean, there are sisters, uh, sisters of color. Uh, I think of Sister Baba Ganesh, for example, who who chooses not to wear a white face. They they wear sort of a lattice pattern on their face wow. um, to express their, you know, their ethnicity. And um, you know, it it's not a requirement. I I quite often don't wear a white face when I go out. And um, we, we actually have a term for, for sisters that just kind of throw on a pair of fun glasses and some jewelry, we call it Mish face, because our founding member, Sister Mish, um, doesn't often wear white face. Uh, it's definitely not a requirement, and that's the thing that's that's so fantastic about the sisters, is there really are no, there really are no um, guidelines or rules, you know, about, um, about, about your look. Um, that being said, you know, we obviously have rules in place uh, as as societies, um, but but it's really about expressing your creativity, your personal creativity, and sort of creating a, a look that works for you. Um, My makeup was so bad the first time I tried, I started to cry. I'm like, I can't do this. I cannot go out with all these beautiful people and represent. I felt like a friggin' clown. It was it was so it's clown drag. It's clown drag. And it's and um, uh, someone that I, I knew at the time just said, hey, this is all about joy. You're this yeah. is supposed to be fun. And if it's not fun, maybe this isn't for you. And then I just took a deep breath and thought, Who cares? stop being a serious yeah. asshole. Like get over your your A type personality and just step into it. So now when I step into um, Sister Jackalicious, it is kind of like I'm I'm a transformer. Like I become who I really, really am, but with a different energy. It's yeah. not the heaviness of the work that I do, which is the nonprofit working with homeless and addiction. It's a little bit more lighthearted, but you still have those really deep, challenging conversations with people. My motto as as a sister is no one's left behind at the table. That that quiet person sitting in the corner is the person that you need to engage. Well, that lonely person needs to be pulled into the, to our community and sit at the front of the stage and be part of what's happening in, in, in that event. Yeah, and going back to yeah, that, 
Yeah, absolutely. Here, here. And going back to that, I mean, you know, we say as sisters when we're going out and doing bar ministry, which is, you know, when we when we go from bar to bar and and just kind of and be present ministry of presence, we like to call it. Um, you know, you go, you go up to the person who's sitting there alone. You go up to the table of, of raucous, um, you know, maybe slightly intoxicated individuals and you talk to everybody. And that's the, the, the fantastic thing about about being a sister and being present. And, um, you know, going back to what Mary Q said, there are some things that I have said and done as Visa that I would never do. Oh, I'm not in, sure about that Visa. In, <laughs> I mean, I remember walking up, I remember walking up to somebody. So, you know, uh, one of the things we have, we always have like fun accessories. And I have a, a hand fan that is covered with dick. It's just a dick print fan. And I literally remember walking up to some guy that I thought was cute in the bar and say, choose the one that's most like yours and write your number. <laughs> and this guy wrote his number on my fan. So I have a fan of Dick's and I have his number written on it. And I think that's great. That's and it's something I never would have had. I never would have had the confidence as as my secular self to go up and do that. It gives so. you it gives you permission to be joyful for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. And, and cheeky and, and all those naughty wonderful things. and all those wonderful things. We hope you've enjoyed part one of Sistery, All About the Joy. Please join us for part two, which will be released shortly. Thank you.